Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. It has been a while, and we are back. You know, I I really like that intro music, so actually, I'm just going to let it go ahead and play one more time. Yes, 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 we are all back with yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. I'm a resident. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And this year, we are working on a lot of things. We have taken a little break from publishing episodes. As a lot of our listeners have known, there haven't been any new things in the past month. But we are back again. And we have a, a couple different couple different ideas and new types of episodes that will be coming this year so stay tuned hit the subscribe button if you have not yet already and we're just gonna hop and jump right back into it with some more new orthopedic surgery and today's guest and today's talk was actually really good now we're back and starting off with some more trauma and we're going over some subtrochanteric femur fractures with dr edgar ariza and a little bit more about dr ariza he Graduated from med school at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. He did his residency at the University of Kansas School of Medicine, and he did his trauma fellowship at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. And we talk a lot about subtrochanteric femur fractures today. We talk about the pathoanatomy. We talk about how to manage this in the emergency department, non-operative treatment, operative treatment, when to nail versus when to plate, what type of nails, what type of uh, technical tips for the procedure, complications. And in the end, we go over some case reviews. So if you haven't already, you know we have a YouTube channel. Go and subscribe there. We will be going over some x-rays. We'll still leave the audio in for this podcast, but if you actually want to see the x-rays and what we're talking about, as well as some of the slides that we may have up you can go to YouTube and check it out at Nailed It Ortho. Every single audio, at least most audios, also have a video version as well. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it for the day. And let's uh, welcome back to all of our regularly listeners, or regular listeners, I guess you could say that. And then for the new people, welcome to the podcast. Let's go. Our sponsor for today's episode is Convey MD. Convey MD is a podcast platform designed specifically for medical education. What makes Convey MD unique is one, they only offer medical podcasts for medical professionals, and there are 25 channels just for orthopedics, including, of course, Nailed It Ortho. Number two, for some podcasts, listeners can view images like slides, x rays, show notes, and transcriptions while listening, and they can download content for future reference and they offer CME or continuing medical education podcasts from groups like Orthopedic Trauma Association. And also here at Nailed It, we look forward to partnering with Convey MD on some future CME episodes as well. It's a free download in the App Store, and we've included a link in the show notes. So download it today and let us know what you think. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Um, Dr. Araiza, uh, welcome to the show. I'm uh, so happy to have you and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this talk. Uh, you know, we, we briefly met during the course um, 
uh, you know, the Scholar Dynamics course on Miami and, uh, you know, went through different approaches and stuff. And I really enjoyed that. So I'm super glad you are. Uh, we're willing to come on the podcast and talk some more, uh, some more fractures and some more orthopedics. So again, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm honored and I'm looking forward to, you know, contributing to your audience. I'm excited about the, uh, the folks that are listening and um, hopefully we can spark good conversation for everyone. Yeah. And Dr. Ryzen, the first things that we typically like to do is just, you know, talk to our guests and get to know them a little bit better. And, you know, we know you do trauma and you're a specialist in trauma. So what, what made you uh, choose trauma out of all the different specialties? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I, um, so the thing that I liked about trauma is that it, it brings me back to just what uh, the general orthopedic surgeon used to be prior to uh, all of the subspecialist, you know, subspecialization that we have nowadays, right? Uh, in my clinic, you know, you can see a 13-year-old pediatric patient with a broken elbow or unexplained knee pain in one room. And in the next room, you can see a 96-year-old lady who broke, who broke her hip um, and had to have either a replacement or, you know, a fixation of that injury. So that broad range of being able to take of pretty much everyone um, and yeah. injuries from the sternoclavicular joint all the way through you know, toe injuries, it's just something that you can't really get in any other field. And, and I'm humbled to be able to do that on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And, and definitely having a lot of different um, tools in your back pocket and being able to take care of all these different injuries is, uh, is you know, this is like you said, it's kind of satisfying and rewarding. Um, another, another question, you know, I have for you is, you know, looking back, you know, is there any advice that you'd give yourself after just finishing up with fellowship, you know, you've been in practice for a little while now, any advice that you would give yourself, it could be about anything. It could be about, you know, the work itself or a lifestyle thing, but any, any advice, if you had to go back and give yourself or give others, uh, what would you say? So definitely what I would say is um, learn to grade your outcomes, uh, not just on your failures, but a lot on your successes as well. Unfortunately, uh, in our field, a lot of times we're focused so much on what we could have done better uh, to improve the, the care that we provided. And that's a good thing. And that's an honorable thing. But at times, it can be a distractor um, that can take away from the things you've already done well. And, mm. you know, I just spoke yesterday, actually, to uh, a, a former resident uh, colleague of mine who just started out her practice. And, you know, she she had a very difficult first week where one out of her 10 cases just turned into this terrible ordeal where everything that um, she was attempting just wasn't responding the way that she wanted it to. And and it really brought her down and, it, and it, it, it brought down her spirit to the point where she was like, oh my God, what if I'm not ready? What if this isn't what I need to do? And, and I told her, I said, you know, but what about the other nine that went great? Like those people matter too. And, and don't forget mm. that, you know, yes, you had one case that didn't go the way that you wanted it to. And of course it kicked your butt and, and you're going to go read about it. You're going to go look at the x-rays. You're going to talk to your mentors and your colleagues about it. But the other nine people that went relatively smooth, they matter as well. And you need to go back home and, and you need to, you know, 
take your lumps and, 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 and prepare to do better for the one outcome that you didn't have that, that wasn't as successful. But you also need to look at what you did well to make sure that you can replicate that in similar patients in the future. Because if you did something well and you don't take time to acknowledge it, to also learn from it and to implement it into uh, your day-to-day practice, then you may miss on establishing good habits that can only help you in the future. So you have to have a, a good balance um, you know, to keep you sane and to keep you motivated um, with your practice. If, if you lose that balance, then it's a lot quicker to, uh, for you to become you know, uh, bitter or angry or, or even you know, uh, sad about what you're doing. And you never should. I mean, orthopedics is a beautiful field. It's a fantastic opportunity to take care of people. We get to impact everyone's uh, day-to-day living and, and their ability to, to live. Um, and that's something that very few people get to do. Yeah, I think that is a, a great piece of advice there. I know even me and my young age in a very uh, limited training and just started fourth year have had kind of some of those similar thoughts. Like, you know, I was doing a call, it was the last maybe one or two weekends ago and had a couple of cases, you know, you're chief on calls, so you're, you're doing, you know, most of the cases, you know, your attending is, is there as well, giving you tips and tricks. Um, but I had some cases that went well and then I had another case. It was a subtroke actually that took a, took a lot longer than I expected. And I was kind of down and I was, you know, kind of doubting myself a little bit. And, um, and I, I really resonate with the fact that what you just said, you know, you have to not only, you know, learn from the mistakes of the case that didn't go well, but also from the cases that did go well. So I think that's a, a great tidbit. And um, last thing we all, you know, we always talk about orthopedics and, you know, a lot of, a lot of things with orthopedics, but do you have any interest outside of orthopedics, anything that, any things that you like to do, you know, just, we just like to get, get to know our guests just a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. I love, um, I love race cars. Um, you oh, know, yeah. I have uh, one of the things that <clears throat> I um, treated myself to once I was an attending and got out of a little bit of debt. And, you know, uh, when I passed boards um, and, and to kind of just, you know, reward myself for, for the blessings in my life, I bought a, um, but a Porsche GT4, uh, which is a track car. It's not a car that you drive um, on the streets. It's a very uncomfortable car to get in and out of. But, you know, it's a bioengineering, uh, you know, just masterpiece. And so being able to get out on the track and being able to um, to learn more about, um, you know, the, the biomechanics of, of of speed and of, and of cars and, and you know, and stability and, and road grip and how to tackle a curve properly. How do you, you're constantly doing things to improve your speed by, you know, by seconds, right. Or even yeah. by a 10th of a second to try to get that lap time to get a little bit better. Um, and, you know, and, it, and it's great. It's a fantastic way to, um, you know, to pass the time and, and you do it in a safe environment. You know, you're, you're always checking your vehicle to make sure that, um, it's up to date that everything is safe. You, know, you wear your helmet, you wear your harness. Um, and it's just, it's a really nice thing because it allows you to, to get away from some of the stresses of, of day-to-day uh, practice and living and, um, and to just, you know, have something that keeps you human and keeps you, uh, and keeps you, you know, honest, uh, right? And, and you have to have that. Uh, we love to go on, on walks with our dogs um, I like photography, so we like to go to, uh, you know, nature and, and go on hikes and, 
and try to take as much uh, photography as we can. My, my wife and I love that. So yeah, definitely the life work balance has to be there. Otherwise uh, it, it is quite difficult to, you know, to stay strong and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Uh, and on that note, we will go ahead and transition and, and get into the talk to for today. We're talking a little bit more about subtroke, uh, subtroke femur fractures. And, um, you know, typically we would go about history and physical exam, but we have, you know, prior episodes on femur fractures. If those listening want to go back and listen to that and learn a little bit more about um, what to, you know, questions to ask on, you know, on patients as far as history and physical exam is concerned. Um, but what, you know, we always hear this term subtrochanteric femur fracture thrown around a lot, but what exactly is a subtrochanteric femur fracture? Right. So by definition, a subtrochanteric fracture, those are proximal femur fractures, and they're located, uh, you know, from the lesser trochanter to at least, you know, to at the most five centimeters distal, distal to it. Um, and they occur both in low energy, you know, elderly uh, patients or high energy young patients uh, mechanisms, but it's that you know, uh, lesser troke to five centimeters from, from the lesser troke um, is by definition a subtrochanteric fracture. Yeah. And what about like, what about these, you know, these fractures make them different than, you know, kind of just our normal femoral, you know, diaphyseal femoral shaft fracture. Like, is there anything, or I guess the kind of the pathoanatomy of this, the subtrochanteric region in particular? So the, the big difference are the amount of deforming forces that you have on the proximal uh, fracture fragment. So you've got your gluteus medius uh, and your gluteus minimus, right? And, and, and those are abducting that proximal uh, fragment. You've got the iliopsoas, which is, is flexing that proximal fragment. Uh, you've got your short external rotators, which are, you know, uh, obviously externally rotating your femur. You're fighting those forces the entire time as you're trying to stabilize this fracture. And then your distal segment is being adducted, adducted and shortened by your adductors. Your, your adductor magnus uh, plays a big role in it. So you literally have four different groups of muscles that are inserting within that tiny little fracture fragment that are, um, you know, that you're fighting against the entire time. Yeah, and I know we'll get into it a little bit later um, about how to counteract these deforming forces, but I know that's always like a, a test question, or at least a good pimp question that a lot of the attendings will ask um, what the deforming forces are. And again, that's, you know, abduction with abductors, external rotator with those external rotators on the proximal fragment as well as flexion due to the iliopsoas. And then just like you said, for that distal fragment, it's going to be adducted and shortened due to the adductors. Now, is there, are there any... Um, I, you know, I was just reading up on this, you know, there's, there's some um, talk about the subtroke having specific, sometimes having like, you know, fracture characteristics. Um, I know, at least in my very short limited time, when I've seen these, I've seen many of them, I've seen many just blasted and comminuted, um, some spiral, but in, in your experience, do any of these have any diff any type of uh, fracture characteristics that you need to know about? You know, in, in general, it depends, right? You can have your um, your long oblique uh, fracture fragments, uh, you know, sometimes they're comminuted. Your atypical fractures, those are the ones that can be quite the challenge to fix. These are your fractures that are uh, transverse uh, fracture uh, uh, fragments. They, um, you you know, and, and this is where you start to talk about like what is an atypical fracture, right? And so, by definition, there was a there was a task force the definition of an atypical uh, femur fracture. 
And they talk about there's major criteria and there's minor criteria. And we can go over those just because they may pop up in a test question. Yeah. Uh, and so, but, you know, when you have your major criteria, um, they're talking about fractures that occur and that are associated with no trauma or minimal trauma. So like a fall from standing height or less, right? So that's minimal trauma. Um, you also have a fracture that originates from the lateral cortex and you can see it by that lateral cortical thickening um, and it's substantially transverse in its orientation. And again, a lot of these should either be, you know, comminuted or, or long oblique fracture fragments. But if you have something with that started out with that lateral cortical uh, beaking or, or thickening, and then it, it all of a sudden turns into a transverse fracture pattern, then that's an atypical fracture there. Um, these non-comminuted fractures, again, very challenging because without comminution, then it then now you go back to your basics of fracture fixation, right? Nails work fantastically because you take these comminuted fracture fragments and you stabilize them. Um, and then you get that indirect bone healing, right? Through that motion. Um, right. and, and, and the more comminution that you have, then the greater motion that you're able to develop, which allows you to, you know, have that indirect, that secondary bone healing, that callus formation. But with these atypical fracture patterns, these aren't comminuted. And so, you know, in non-comminuted fractures or simple fracture patterns, they love compression. And so then that's when it becomes a really challenging part of how do you get these essentially transverse fractures to become anatomic when you fix them and for you to fix them in a fashion where they're still being compressed to allow you to, you know, to, uh, to get those to heal. So they can be, um, you know, quite difficult uh, to, uh, for those to heal at times. Then you've got that localized periosteal or endosteal thickening of the lateral cortex. So that's sometimes present at the fracture site. Um, so those are kind of like your major criteria. Um, as far as, you know, your minor criteria, um, you know, you've got an increase in cortical uh, thickness of the uh, femoral diaphysis. That's something that happens. Um, people will talk to you about these prodromal symptoms, right? They had dull or aching pain in the groin or the thigh that had been present for several weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks. They went to get an x-ray. You know, the radiologist or the family uh, medicine doctor or the ER doctor didn't pay close attention. They saw that there was no fracture. They missed that, that lateral cortical thickening, right? But they did have that that um, prodr those prodromal symptoms uh, upon presentation. Um, you know, sometimes they have. If if you have one atypical fracture, you better look at the other femur because these can be associated with uh, you know bilateral uh, incomplete uh, fracture uh, patterns. Then obviously you've got delayed fracture healing uh, that can also occur. So you know that's that's in general. <clears throat> you know if uh, if, if you don't have that simple spike or that simple comminuted or oblique fracture and you see that transverse fracture pattern, you better be aware that, that you may be looking at an atypical fracture. Yeah. And on, in these atypical fractures, do you, are they most uh, in your experience, are they mostly associated? Cause when they, when they test this or any time I see them or, or ask about them, they always bring it up and they talk about kind of being in the setting of, you know, using bisphosphonates as, or at least it being, um, it being a more, common thing with bisphosphonates when you see these but is 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 that how it is in in your experience or is there is there anything else that you know can kind of lead to these atypical femur fractures yeah no absolutely i mean they're almost exclusively associated with bisphosphonate use of some sort um, at any point in time 
Uh, and again, the characteristics that you're going to look at just on radiographs, you're going to see that lateral cortical thickening. You're going to see uh, increased diaphyseal cortical thickness. Um, it's going to be a transverse or short oblique fracture orientation. There's going to be no combination. There's also going to be a medial uh, spike. So lateral thickening, medial spike, transverse orientation, um, you know, bisphosphonate use, very common. It's always in the same question. Yeah. And, and are, are there any classification systems that you use for subtrochanteric femur fractures? I know reading up, I, I've saw some, um, but, you know, is there anything that you use or that you know of mm -hmm. or uh, yeah. that are important? So there's two. Uh, there's the Russell Taylor classification. And then there's also the AOOTA classification. So for Russell Taylor, fairly simple. It's the uh, type one or type twos. Um, and, you know, and, and to just kind of keep it simple, your type ones, there's no extension into the piriformis fossa. And your type twos, there's extension into the greater trochanter uh, with involvement of the piriformis fossa. Um, and so, you know, what you want to do is you actually want to look at the lateral uh, x-ray to identify whether or not there's that piriformis fossa extension. Um, and, and that's really, um, what, uh, what one looks at, uh, as far as the, uh, <clears throat> the other classification, the AOOTA classification. So there it's your 32 a fractures. Um, so there's 32 a 32 B, uh, 32 C. And so, you know, your 32 a fractures are your simple, um, transverse, uh, subtrochanteric fractures. Your 32 B's are your wedge uh, fragmented, uh, subtrochanteric fractures. And then your 32 C's, um, as you know, from the uh, AOTA classification, now we're getting into the more complex, you know, spiral type of fractures. Right. And, and why is that important if these fractures extend into the piriformis <clears throat> fossa, you know, is this something that you can open up and clamp and then try to get a starting point over that? Or what, what's the importance of, of it extending into the piriformis fossa? Well, it may eliminate your ability to get what's known as an on-axis um, starting point if you're thinking about fixing it um, with, a, uh, with an anti-grade femoral nail. Um, you know, the, these fractures, uh, if you have these fractures that don't extend into the piriformis fossa, then we could talk about tips and tricks. But in general, what you have is a proximal femur shaft fracture. And... You know, and in those fracture uh, patterns, then the best for reduction, the best for fixation is to maximize the amount of compression that you're going to have from your proximal fragment to your distal fragment. And the best way to do that is by having an on-axis nail that can, you know, that can fix that. It's also going to essentially do the reduction for you. But when you have extension into the piriformis fossa, now you may need to change your, your means of fixation. Now, instead of going on access uh, with your femur, now you may have to go off access. And, you know, and, and if it goes into the piriformis fossa and maybe even involves the base of the femoral neck, uh, then, you know, now you, now you change your complete implant choice as well, because you may need to do a proximal femur plate um, to be able to stabilize that base of the neck um, area or do an off-axis cephalomedullary nail type of implant um, to be able to stabilize that basic cervical fracture pattern along with that subtrochanteric proximal femur fracture pattern. So 
Mm-hmm. Your fixation will completely depend on whether or not that fracture line extends into the piriformis fossa. Okay. Makes total sense. And we'll, and we'll get into, um, you know, kind of some of the operative tips and tricks here in a bit, but say, you know, for example, you get this patient or say you have some residents with you and they call you and they say this patient here, you know, they're 35 year old male involved in a high motor vehicle collision found had the subtrochanteric femur fracture. Do you, is, is, what is your acute management in the ED? I, you know, I know where we are. We, well, you know, we, we tend to put these patients in skeletal traction, but is that something that you do or what, what was your, what would be your, um, your emergency department management, acute care? So skeletal traction is great for symptom management. And the reason why is because it, it's the best form of a muscle relaxer that you can give a patient. And I didn't understand that until I got into practice and I did it long enough that I realized you know, that people actually feel better when you put them in the traction. And it's simply because the muscles finally just tire out. And there is a massive amount of pain that occurs in these folks because of the deforming forces. And those muscles just keep pulling and pulling and pulling on those fracture patterns. They keep continuing to cause um, inflammation, muscle edema, not to mention the fact that you can have further oozing from that medullary canal into the surrounding tissues. Now you've got an expanding hematoma, which can compress some of the nerves. Um, and again, to lead to some further downfield effects. Um, and so when, whenever you put someone uh, in skeletal traction, uh, then now you're um, allowing for those muscles to relax. You're allowing for that bone to become more uh, on axis um, than it was at the time of the injury. And you're minimizing uh, soft tissue trauma, which is important as far as fracture healing is concerned. We know that soft tissue handling and, and management of soft tissue uh, is incredibly important to fracture healing. And so all of these things can be accomplished with a skeletal traction. I typically tend to do this for people who are younger. Um, so your younger males uh, or females who were involved in a high-speed motor vehicle accident or maybe a fall from height. I don't do them in the elderly, even in subtrochanteric fracture patterns. And, you know, there was a really good uh, study that was published by, um, you know, the AOS, where essentially they looked at our clinical practice guidelines for the management of hip fractures in the elderly. And, you know, when they looked at all of the studies that were out there, there was no difference um, as far as pain uh, levels are concerned in geriatric patients with hip fractures, uh, whether they went into traction or no traction. So typically, if I'm going to do anything on a geriatric patient overnight, if they're really uncomfortable, I'll put them in Bucks traction with about five to 10 pounds at the most, never more than that. Um, if they're comfortable, I leave them as is. Okay. And so say, you know, we have our patient there in some type of traction or maybe even not if they're, you know, elderly patient. Are there any patients that you undergo non-operative treatment for with these subchokes? And if there are, what is that treatment? So non-operative, uh, you know, treatment is typically reserved for non-ambulatory patients um, with medical comorbidities that we do not allow them to tolerate um, surgery. Um, and, you know, it's very limited role, um, again, secondary to the uh, to those muscular forces that are constantly deforming those fracture patterns, those fracture fragments. Um, and it's also, you you know, the inability to mobilize these folks without the surgical intervention. So it's incredibly rare. Um, and it typically is deserved. It's only reserved for 
uh, for hospice, um, end of life patients that to me are either demented and no longer demonstrate the ability to feel pain um, or um, the risk is so great that any kind of anesthetic would lead to a major intraoperative um, complication. And so those folks, we end up getting them you know, on hospice because we know the pain from the injury is going to be so great that they're going to have a pretty high um, mortality rate anyway. So we want to get those folks in you know, as comfortable as possible. Okay. And so, you know, that's kind of the non-op treatment. So what are some of the, I guess we can kind of go just broad. What are some of the um, general operative treatment options? And then we can kind of go more specific and break some things down. But in, in general, what are some of the ways to treat these you know, subtrochanteric femur fractures? So you can nail these fractures um, or you can plate these fractures. So nailing is kind of the standard of care. Now, I think it's always important um, for uh, medical students, residents, um, fellows, and early career surgeons to understand that there legitimately is a difference between a cephalomedullary nail and a reconstruction nail. And oftentimes when I see fractures that fail, it's because the surgeon, the treating surgeon didn't, didn't know what the difference was between the two nails and, 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 you know, what they're meant to be used for. So when you have a fracture that is subtrochanteric to distal, that, you know, fracture can be used, can be treated with just an intramedullary nail. And it's just an anti-grade nail that has a proximal interlocking screw. It can go into the lesser trochanter. It can go, you know, an oblique orientation across the, the trochanters, or it can go into the femoral neck if you want to. You can have one going into the femoral neck, one going into the subtrochanteric region. Um, you know, a reconstruction nail, uh, simply in, 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 my, uh, in my hands and what it does is it's, it's just a nail with proximal interlocking screws. And then the right. distal interlocking screws obviously are put in um, with, uh, you know, uh, uh, with your perfect circle technique or your targeter if you must. Um, a cephalomedullary nail, by definition, you are trying to get compression across that femoral head. So that is more of your nails that have a lag screw or a helical blade or a screw um, or a two screw construct into the head. Um, and there is some sort of compression that occurs across the base of the femoral neck with that screw. Okay. And okay. so this is, this is again, going back to the fracture patterns, your type ones versus your type twos. If you have a fracture that doesn't go into the uh, the piriformis fossa, then you need to fix that with a reconstruction type of nail or an, or an anti-grade uh, nail period. If you have a fracture <clears throat> that extends into the piriformis fossa, then now you must get compression across that piriformis fossa. You must compress that, you know, additional fracture line. And you can only do that with a cephalomedullary nail. You have to have something that has a lag screw that goes into that femoral head and neck that is going to compress across the base of the neck to allow for that fracture line to, to heal. I've seen some of these fractures that are treated with reconstruction nails and they end up failing. Why? Because those, those quote unquote lag screws um, that are placed through that reconstruction nail, they don't provide enough force uh, or enough strength 
to be able to compress across the base of that femoral neck. And so you really wanna make sure that you use the correct nail um, for the correct fracture pattern. Um, if for whatever reason, um, you don't feel like you can um, safely nail um, this uh, proximal femur um, <clears throat> fracture. And we did, you know, and, and we published a study um, in JOT um, a couple of years out of, uh, out of Wake Forest where we looked at proximal uh, nailing of uh, femur fractures, pro proximal plating of femur fractures. And, and, and we discussed on there that in certain fracture patterns where you don't have um, the ability to contain the nail within the femur itself, it is acceptable uh, to uh, plate these fractures, uh, but the principles still apply. Whether you use a blade plate um, or whether you use a proximal femur plate, you had to respect the soft tissues, you had to respect the biology. So what we recommended was, uh, you know, minimal dissection across the fracture lines, essentially making a small incision at the level of the vastus lateralis to create this kind of channel that allows you to slide your plate underneath, you know, distally. And then you can make sure that you get that fracture well reduced, you get it in a nice valgus position, um, and then you can stabilize it with that fixed angle uh, device uh, into the proximal femur so that you're allowing for constant compression across the, the subtrochanteric region throughout uh, its healing. Okay. And so kind of to summarize what you were just saying, right? So when we were, think when we're thinking about nailing and different types of nails, and we think about the fracture orientation. So if we have, if we have just a subtrochanteric femur fracture where you do not have extension into let's say the piriformis fossa we can use what's called a reconstruction nail which is pretty much just two locking screws that go into the femoral head or you know through the neck into the femoral head versus if we have a fracture that as uh, a subtrochanteric that actually extends into the piriformis fossa now we need something that'll give us some compression over that fracture line that's going into the piriformis fossa so instead of these screws that are interlocking screws that don't give you any compression you would use you know some type of a construct where you have a lag screw or you use a blade plate uh, not a blade plate i'm sorry or you use a um uh a, a blade um like the, you know uh, blanking on the, the helical term, blade just, yeah yeah the helical blade um so you either use like a helical blade or a lag screw or some type of construct that gives you compression through that through that um uh through that fracture line so those are the two different categories. So just our reconstruction nail is literally just two interlocking screws, just like when we have our distal screws that we do, just like you're saying with a perfect circle technique, those are just interlocking screws, no compression over that. And they are, it, they really yeah. are. And, and, and no, and, and, and I think like if you had non-displaced um, femoral neck fracture or even a non-displaced hard to tell line across the, um, the base of the femoral neck. Yeah, you could put the two uh, lag screws, um, but again, they're not gonna lock into the plate. And then, um, and you're also not getting, you know, tremendous um, compression either um, across that, um, that femoral neck. And, and so, you know, whereas when you use a cephalomedullary nail, by definition, that lag screw is compressing the minute, you know, from that femoral head, through the neck all the way across the base of the neck. So if you need added compression across the proximal femur, not just the proximal femur shaft, 
then you want to use a cephalomedullary nail construct. If you just need to stabilize the proximal femur for both fixation and also rotation, then, you know, a, uh, a reconstruction nail allows you to do that. Um, and, and the nice thing about it is these reconstruction screws that you're putting into the femoral head and neck are obviously smaller. You're taking out less bone from the femoral neck and head, um, lower profile, and, and certainly can cause less damage to the endoscopy of the bone than, than a lag screw would in an area that's not broken. And, and then on the contrary, so, and I remember one of the, you know, a lot of things I had trouble with is, you know, I'd sit here and I'd be like, oh, I think that probably use some reconstruction, you know, recon nails would, I would use in the titanium, but I think I'll put a blade plate in that. So what, again, would be the reason why you're looking at a fraction, you'll say, okay, I, that is one I think I, that could be better used with a plate versus a nail. If there's no, um, if the entire piriformis fossa um, is completely comminuted, uh, maybe if you have a lateral wall blowout, posterior wall uh, uh, blowout of the proximal femur, um, and you think that you're just going to, you know, you're going to slide a nail um, into this empty space. And sure, you can put a lag screw through the nail uh, into the femoral head and you'll compress that femoral head and, and neck into the nail. But if there's, if there's no basey cervical area, if there's no area, if there's no pertrochanteric area for that nail to squeeze, for that lag screw to squeeze, um, you know, into, then that fracture is going to have a really hard time healing. Um, when you use a blade plate um, or a proximal uh, femur plate, locking plate construct, you're doing it in, a, in an area where you really need to push all of that lateral femur medially. So rather than putting cables around the femur, um, like you might have to, to get that nail to kind of hold within the canal. Instead, you're going to use the plate to push everything medially. You're pushing the lateral femur, you're pushing, you're pushing the posterior medial femur, you're pushing it medially against the base of that neck. And then you're going to hold it there with these uh, fixed angle screws or this fixed angle device. And then you're gonna lock it, you know, uh, distally to the femur, not with locking screws, you're gonna use non-locking screws so that you can then compress that proximal femur fracture uh, fragment that you just fixed with those uh, fixed angle devices to the distal fragments. Ah, okay. Yeah, that, that makes, um, definitely makes a little bit more sense now. That's something that I always, uh, was wondering uh, back in the day and I know we're going back and forth, but back to nailing, if we're trying to choose a uh, start point, any, any thoughts on the different start points and why you would choose one versus another, if you're thinking of using an anti-grade femoral nail to treat a subtrochanteric femur fracture? Yes. So if you have um, an extra articular fracture um, and you know, or type A doesn't involve the piriformis fossa. Using an on-axis and inline uh, starting point uh, through the piriformis fossa will help you reduce uh, the, the proximal fracture fragment and then also minimize the likelihood that you're going to go into a varus malreduction. Um, and sometimes even, you know, uh, a, a flexion malreduction as well, because again, um, you, you really control the entire proximal femur uh, through a piriformis uh, access point. 
Unfortunately, there are some times when patients are really morbidly obese or really muscular, and you're not able to um, <clears throat> get a piriformis starting point. And in that point, then you have to do an off-axis or greater trochanteric entry. That doesn't mean that you should ignore the principles of, of fixation. And those folks, you need, to, you need to think about, okay, how can I control that proximal femur uh, fragment? And, you know, one thing that you can do is you can use a shan spin and just put it into the most distal aspect of the proximal femur and just use that to help you um, control that proximal femur so that then you can get the perfect antegrade uh, starting point. So you can use a shan spin uh, from lateral to medial. Um, certainly you can use clamps as well um, to help you kind of compress the proximal to distal uh, fracture fragments. Pelvic clamps are great for this. Um, they do a fantastic job of uh, helping you reduce that. If you have a long spiral fracture fragment, you can use a collinear reduction clamp. It does wonderful. It's minimally invasive. You can do it through small incisions. Um, and it's a relatively safe uh, reduction aid to use. Um, and then large Weber's as well, you can uh, use the proximal, um, you know, you can use the proximal tine and really dig into the greater trochanter um, and then make some small, small pilot holes into the distal segment if necessary, and then compress from proximal to distal. Again, you're, you're, you're taking those forces and, and you're turning them into tension um, forces by using those clamps. Uh, and then that can straighten out your femur and allow you to get that on axis starting point. Now, you have to be careful if you have to go off axis. Um, so if you have to do a, a, a greater trochanteric entry point, then the placement of your clamps becomes incredibly crucial because oftentimes what you'll find is that you end up putting your clamps right over the greater trochanter. And then now you can't, you don't have access to that starting point, mm -hmm. right? So if you're going to use clamps to reduce your fracture, then do so understanding that hopefully you can do a piriformis entry point. If you cannot do a piriformis entry point and you have to do, uh, you know, an, uh, an off access point, then you can still do it, but you just need to place your clamps a little bit more distal to the greater trochanter. So that way they're not in your way when you are getting that entry point, And most importantly, when you're reaming as well. Mm, okay. So in, in, so in many of these cases, do you, do you attempt to close reduction? And if you can't do that, would you, do you just go ahead and open it up and then, you know, use one of those tactics that we we're just talking about, you know, you can try to reduce it with a, Weber clamp or use a shan spin from lateral to medial posteriorly to the nail and try to manipulate that fragment so you can get your starting point. Um, or is that what you, you know, is just kind of your sequence of events or are you saying like, you know, if you know you're going to use a reconstruction nail and you're going to have to make an incision anyways, uh, put two screws up, do you just go ahead and make that incision and clamp it from the, from the get go? So I used to try to do these, um, in a closed fashion when I first started. And then I realized it never works. It just doesn't. <laughs> and so I, I very quickly uh, let go of that, you know, almost like a person, like a pride factor. Yeah. And, and then I realized these are not going to go on the Hannah uh, or your fracture table, because no matter how hard you pull through that fracture, you're still not going to be able to correct that proximal 
uh, flexion and then also external rotation and abduction, right? And so, and in fact, sometimes it's even harder um, to, to correct that deformity on the fracture table. And then you end up opening them and making even a bigger incision so that you can get a cob along the front of the femur so you can correct the flexion, a ball spike pusher, you know, along the lateral aspect of the femur so that you can correct the external rotation and the abduction. And then through the distal segment, now you have to put a cob underneath it so that you can correct that extension of the distal segment and so that you can bring it more into flexion. So doing that is quite difficult um, if you don't have a lot of hands. Um, and also you're fighting the real estate, you know, either you make a big massive incision or if you're trying to do this in a soft tissue friendly fashion, then it can be quite a disaster. So all of these folks are lateral on a flat table for me, whether that's a, a Jackson table um, or any kind of radiolucent table. Uh, it is fantastic. Uh, you know, it, it helps you right off the bat. You essentially take out the, the adductors, right? We talked about the adductors are a big um, deforming force. So the minute you put them lateral, you already took them out. Be prepared immediately to have an extra uh, bump of towels that you can put you know, right underneath the thigh as well, because that'll help take the adductors uh, away even more. And then also, you know, when you're, it's a lot easier to pull on the leg and to get that inline traction. And it's also a lot easier to correct um, some of that uh, abduction of the proximal fracture fragment, because you're looking at it, you're staring at it, you can make a smaller incision and immediately push down on it with a ball spike pusher. But I always open these. I, what I like to do is before I even look at, you know, how I'm going to um, nail this fracture, I look at how am I going to reduce this fracture. So these people are lateral on a flat table, radiolucent table for me. I bring in the C-arm immediately um, to, the, um, uh, to the lateral rather than going to the AP. And I mark out how flexed is my anterior, um, you know, it, how flexed is my proximal fragment and how extended is my distal fragment. And then I kind of pick the middle line and I say, okay, this femur should be going across in this direction. So I mark out my incision where I think the femur should go. Then I make a nice dissection down to the fascia. I identify the vastus. Um, and then I go underneath the vastus. It's always a nice subvastus approach. I try to preserve as many of the, um, of the vessels as I can and, and coag the ones that are in the way, your perforators. And then I put a a blunt, um, you know, cob along the front and along the back of the femurs. And then at that point in time, if it's a spiral oblique fracture pattern, then like I said, I try to clamp it with um, either a large uh, lobster clamp or, or maybe a collinear clamp. It does great for this. Um, if it's a, a very comminuted uh, fracture fragment, then certainly you can consider using shan spins, one in the proximal uh, fragment, one in the most distal one, and then just using um, maybe even a universal distractor to kind of help you get it out to length and correct it. The proximal femur, you can correct the extension by putting a cob along the front of the femur and using that to correct that flexion. And again, the abduction, you can correct it by just using a ball spike. You're, you're staring at it so you can push straight down and that corrects that segment. And then I try to hold that reduction somehow, right? And again, uh, clamp placement then becomes key. And then once we have all that, then now I tell myself, okay, you know, is this truly 
a subtrochanteric fracture without extension into the piriformis fossa. If it is, I try to get my uh, piriformis entry point. Uh, and then um, if it's something that I feel is more comminuted it may extend into the proximal uh, piriformis fossa, then I just go for an off access point. Okay. And okay. So you, you know, you start off, you know, we'll take a second, go back to the approach. So when you do your approach, just a technical tip, just technical question is because I'm wondering, cause I'm doing them now <laughs> when you're doing your sub approach, uh, you know, you're trying to kind of go right underneath the vastus lateralis. Do you use a cob to kind of clear that off? Or um, I know you said you use a cob and you put it, you know, over the anterior and posterior femur, but anything, or you just use your finger and just feel underneath and then just try to put a home in or something underneath there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So make your incision, um, get nice, uh, you know, uh, cauterization, uh, hemostasis down to the level of the fascia. And then I don't put any retractors um, to the, you know, uh, until I get to the fascia. Again, you want to minimize, um, you know, the stripping. Essentially what you want to do as a surgeon is you want to stop creating your own morel lavalli lesions. Stop devascularizing the subcutaneous fat from the fascia. That's something that's, that's hard to understand and to visualize, particularly in morbidly obese people. But a lot of your uh, subcutaneous fluid collections that eventually become infected are going to come because you just went down, you know, made your skin incision and immediately started stripping all the fat away. And all you did was just create a morale lesion. So you don't want to do that. You want to make a nice full thickness dissection um, down to the fat. And then, and then you can clear off just the area that you're going to incise uh, a little bit with a cob elevator. You make your incision. And then at this point in time, just like if you were going to do a hip arthroplasty procedure, you take the fascia and you retracted anterior and posterior to the femur. And you could do that with self-retaining retractors. And you're not going to hurt the skin because they're deep to the fascia. At this point, then what you do is you feel kind of that, uh, that proximal, uh, you know, vastus ridge there. And then you can make a nice little incision along the, uh, the, the proximal aspect. Uh, so you go from anterior to posterior. And then you can elevate the vastus in that fashion. So then you just take a cog and you just bluntly start to elevate it from posterior to anterior um, until you see what you need to see. And, and then right. you, you, you hold that, those proximal fracture fragments uh, and your exposure uh, with just some blunt homens. Always use blunt homens around here. I don't like using sharp homens. Um, a lot of people, you know, they do like using your Cobra type of retractors. We got to be careful because not every Kroger retractor is, is blunt. Some of them are fairly sharp. And um, you do have some, you have a lot of vessels around the medial side of that femur there that can be quite difficult to control if you just go in there and, and, and kind of, you know, lacerate those from uh, the contralateral side. So once you get your blunt retractors along <clears throat> the medial, uh, the, the anterior and posterior aspect of the femur, then you can do a lot of work. A good kind of tip that I learned a lot of your hip pans for total hip arthroplasty, they have these uh, carbon fiber radiolucent retractors. So one oh, thing yeah. that you can do is find out at your institution um, where which sets those radiolucent carbon fiber retractors were, are located in and just tell them like, okay, which set are those in? And for these femurs, uh, for these fractures, I always have them bring those retractors up because you can leave, leave those in place when you bring your C-arm in. Uh, to see how your reduction is going without having to take them out um, and without having to find your exposure all the time. Okay. And so, you know, like you said, you went down, you did your exposure, you, 
Exposed to fracture side, you set up. It's kind of those long oblique ones. You may use a point to point or a Weber clamp to see if you can um, get your reduction. If it's uh, one that's a little bit more common, you did tips and tricks you had for that would be to use a chance pin, put it from um, uh, lateral to medial to help you control that proximal fragment. You mentioned a little bit earlier about um, uh, possibly, you know, using a, you know, like a two five drill bit or something and and making a drill hole distally and then putting a clamp over the greater choke enter and then using that drill hole to place the other clamp. You can uh, compress through that. You talked about using a, 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 a linear bone reduction clamp. And then other tips just to uh, reiterate, I think that you said is to help get rid of the flexion of the proximal fragment from the, from the iliopsoas. You can use a cob and try to push that down and to help get rid of that abduction from our abductors on the proximal femur, you can use a ball spike pusher and push that in. And then once you got that kind of clamp and see what you can, uh, what you can get uh, from there. Now, do you ever use a, like a little provisional plate for, um, for any time and you just put some unicortical screws in? Yes. If they're really comminuted. And if I'm able to use an on-access uh, piriformis entry point. And in fact, that's one of the best things that you can do. Um, you know, in fracture surgery, I always ask myself, like, can I divide a bone or a segment into three columns, a medial, intermediate, and a lateral column? And so if you're, if you're looking at a proximal femur and you have this massive amount of medial, posterior medial comminution, um, and then you have just a tiny little you know, cortical contact laterally, well, that may not be enough to really support your entire fixation construct. And so by putting on just a tiny provisional, um, you, you know, unicortical plate with some 12 millimeter locking screws, um, you actually reestablish your lateral column so that your, um, your nail will then become your intermediate and your medial column essentially of that proximal femur, and it'll increase significantly the stability of your construct um, to allow for uh, for that fracture to, you know, to hopefully have more fixation, uh, you know, likelihoods and healing as well. So, uh, it, and we don't take it out. Again, that is not going to prevent, it's a small, you know, it's a small fixation construct with tiny little unicortical locking screws they're going to hold your reduction for you. They are not going to prevent that micro motion that that nail is going to try to do for you. So definitely you don't have to take it out. It, it's, a, it's a reduction aid. And just think of it as a permanent clamp that's staying there holding your reduction so that your nail can do the rest of the work for you. Okay. And um, and one more thing, or at least one more thing to touch up on before, before we wrap up here is do you have any tips as far as when you're uh, reaming or getting an entry point? You know, some of the things that I was reading, uh, you know, kind of just preparing for this talk and preparing for cases in general is with the piriformis entry, it was saying you want to, you could, you know, start it just slightly more anterior um, and try and medialize the reamer. Can you kind of talk about, you know, what, what they're getting at with this information or like kind of what, what um, some things we need to know about, you know, reaming and, it's nailing these? Yeah, so you're never going to ream more medial than your guide pin is that. So that's one thing that you want to learn right off the bat is that um, by definition, as you're reaming your natural tendency um, and, you're, and you're kind of forcing the reamer, if it's a really tight canal or if it's a really morbidly obese patient, 
you're forcing them always from the outside, you know, of the body or away from the body towards the body. So you're always, you know, leveraging that reamer against the lateral femur. And so, you know, if, if your whole concept of trying to do an on access or a piriformis nail um, is to be, you know, in line with the femur, well, then the last thing that you want to do is you want to is turn that piriformis entry into a greater trochanteric entry, right? So, so starting, you know, like we talked about uh, a little bit more um, anterior helps you um, because it's also going to prevent you from going a little bit more lateral as well. Um, so that's, so that's one good thing. Also putting your screws into the head. Um, most of the time you'll find that you're, you're getting into the posterior medial aspect of the femoral neck as you're going into the head. And so when they talk about starting just slightly a little bit more anterior, that'll help you get those screws into the femoral uh, head and neck into a more center center position. Um, medializing the reamer to prevent eccentric reamer reaming again, that talks about how you're always going to come more lateral than you think you're going. Um, if you find yourself that like, man, if something's not right, I started out reaming more medial than I'm currently at. The one thing you can do is you can take a cob and put it and slide it um, over the lateral aspect of the hole that you've been reaming and then use that as your new lateral window so that you can force yourself to ream again more medially. So even if, if, if we make the mistake, because I've done it myself, of all of a sudden reaming eccentrically because now I'm a little bit more lateral than I started, then before I put my nail down, and even when I put my nail down, I'll take a cob and I'll use it to, to push my guide wire medially. And then I'll know that as I ream again and as I pass my nail down, that cob will keep me down the center of where I've started and not where I became eccentrically. Um, and then uh, again, <clears throat> I think... Um, you know, one of the things we're talking about tips to prevent the guide wire from going medial, um, if there's an oblique split, uh, present, um, really what, what should matter there is, is more than anything, realizing that are you, do you have the correct starting point, right? If you have an oblique, you know, fracture line, uh, present, then you really should be doing an off axis, uh, entry point. You shouldn't be doing an on axis or piriformis entry point. And so that's one of the things that can help you from going into that fracture line is by making sure that you're starting at the correct point. I think that was great and excellent. And, and just to um, uh, just to further explain, when we're talking about, you know, reaming, we're talking about when we're putting it in, because when I first when I was thinking about it, I thought it was I, I kept thinking about the distal part of the reamer. But it actually, if we what we're talking about is when we're reaming and we're starting it in you know, the, the wire seems to drift more and more laterally that with the reamer, you start to take out more and more of the lateral, like that lateral circle, I guess you could say. And, and, and that is what would cause um, more of a varus deformity if you continue to do that. Cause once you start to, instead of it being a straight line, it starts to be a curved line. And once you implant a straight implant it'll it'll go into varus if that makes sense at least for those listening to this you, you may have to look up some pictures and um, picture in your head but you know that's kind of one of the things that took me a while to figure out that's what we were talking about when we were talking about this it does and, and when you're going into varus you're going into varus because you now reduce the proximal segment yeah and, and so and, and that's the thing you can't do you have to 
minimize the likelihood of that happening at all costs. Um, you know, the other thing too, to keep in mind as far as uh, distally uh, is making sure that before you ever start to ream, uh, you take a really good perfect AP and a really good lateral of your distal femur to ensure that your guide wire is in the center center position. And more than anything, you have to remember that very few nails will actually match the radius of curvature of, of the femurs that we're dealing with. And so therefore, what I try to do is I take my ball tape guide rod and I actually try to put it into the lower third of the femur on the lateral because I know it's not gonna end up that way. Um, if anything, it's gonna end up a little bit middle third to upper third. But I, but I definitely don't want it to come out the anterior aspect of the femur. And we know that's a right. common mistake that. That, that, that's, that's done. And so therefore, if you bury that, that guide wire um, into that lower third on the lateral, then that's going to essentially protect you, um, you know, to the best of the ability. Um, and the, the other thing too, whenever you bury it into the distal third, uh, the inferior third of the lateral femur, you get into some nice, almost subchondral bone that um, you know, uh, uh, prevents you from migrating anteriorly. So definitely do that. Um, other tips that I've learned, um, if you have an empty, um, you know, if you're, if you're nailing someone who has really osteoporotic bone, you can put a, you can put a blocking guide wire distally, you know, a drill bit. And just, if you're thinking you're migrating too medially with your reaming, stop what you're doing, bring your guide wire back, um, you know, and decrease the size of that medullary canal, make a small little incision, see where your guide wire is going, um, put a, put a, put a drill bit that you're going to use for your distal interlocks and just go from A to P exactly in that orientation. And then now your guide wire is going to go lateral to that. And it's going to keep you from migrating too immediately distally, um, as you re-ream, you just have to make sure that you re-ream through your new uh, path. So that way your nail will know, will know where to go. Um, Every company has a long finger reduction tool, every company, regardless of who they are. So you have to ask them to make sure that they have it available. Most of these are, um, you know, eight to nine millimeters in diameter. You can ask your rep, what is the diameter of the shaft of your long finger reduction tool? Because you can use that to your advantage if, if the Baltic guide rod isn't going where you want it to be, then use your long finger reduction tool and then just almost oscillate all the way down to the femur so that then you can decrease the distance that your ball tip guide rod has to travel um, by just, you know, shortening it where it just has to go from the end of your finger reduction tool to the end of the femur. And you can control that, obviously, by putting about a 10 to 15 degree bend uh, into your ball tip guide rod distally. So those are some of the things that, that can help you uh, make sure that you're reaming properly and that you can really control the path of that femur. The femur will not... Um, you know, do the reduction for you the way that you ream it and the way that you, the nail will not do the reduction for you. Um, and, and it might seem contrary because you might say, well, Dr. Ariza, you just told me that doing a piriformis entry nail, um, you know, will reduce the femur for me. No, it's your reaming will reduce that fracture for you. Um, your finger reduction tool will reduce that fracture for you if you actually get the correct starting point and you don't malreduce it. But you have to remember that the nail is just the conclusion of everything that you've done before um, that point. Right. And I think that's um, super important. I think those are all great 
um, great tips and uh, tidbits as far as the technical aspects of this case. And I know you could have a whole um, a whole podcast episode on the complications from from subchokes, but uh, just really quickly, do you mind just kind of touching on some of the big complications from subchokes um, that we see after we nail these? Right. So um, you know, improper reduction from the the starting point again, that's a big deal. Um, you know, you can go into varus um, inflection malreduction, um, commonly seen when these are done on a fracture table. Um, because um, it's quite difficult to correct those deforming forces. And again, you get that nailed down, that improperly reamed uh, path, and it's going to stay uh, improperly um, reduced. Uh, and then non-union um, certainly can happen. Um, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's something that is seen particularly with your atypical fractures, uh, right. And, and it's seen again, because rather than having that comminution that increases your surface area for secondary bone healing, you have these relatively simple fracture patterns. And if you did not reduce this anatomically and you are not compressing across that fracture line, it is very unlikely to heal. And so you may need to do either exchange nailing or maybe do, uh, you know, a fixed angle plate uh, uh, with or without bone grafting. These are the only femurs that I will actually uh um, dynamically lock distally, so allow, to allow them to start compressing the minute that they walk. Um, mm. Most of the time, um, we statically lock them um, because obviously we don't want to change the length of them. Um, but by definition, a transverse femur fracture is a stable fracture pattern. So um, if you dynamically lock them, then you know that tiny little amount of you know that one uh, centimeter of compression can certainly. Uh, help them in those atypical fracture patterns if if it's necessary if you think you uh, if you think you need it. Well, excellent. I think Dr. Riza, I think this was a um, great pod, great podcast, great talk. I know I learned a bunch just from uh, talking to you and hearing some of your uh, your different tips and tricks. We you know we touched on uh, the deforming forces, we touched on pathoanatomy, we touched on the management, uh, we touched on the approach, we touched on reduction tools, tips, tricks talked on about the different types of um, nails, one to, you know, kind of some broad characteristics of, or gen- of one to nail versus one to plate. So I think this was, this was really good. Um, anything else uh, that you think, you know, you want the listeners to get out of this, um, you know, after listening to this podcast before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I, I want uh, listeners to understand that these are complex uh, femur fractures, and that it is important to not uh, take these uh, as your regular femur shaft fractures that you, you know that you're going to go in and, and possibly do in just um, 30 minutes. Um, don't be afraid to ask for a foley uh, so that you don't get into a situation where um, you know you're two hours in and your nurse is asking you how much longer because we forgot to put a foley in. Um, <laughs> Treat these fractures. Yeah. Treat these fractures as though you're going to open. So make sure that you have good access. Your anesthesiologist should have, uh, you know, uh, good access uh, for uh, infusion uh, of any kind of uh, blood products as necessary. Know the resuscitation status of your patient um, and whether or not they can tolerate a, a long open procedure where you can have 500 to a liter of blood loss. Um, make sure that you've studied the pre-procedure CT scan well so that you can know whether or not 
you can do uh, an on-axis mail versus if you need to go off-axis. Um, and then also uh, make sure that you know whether or not you need to compress across the base of that femoral uh, neck or whether you can do it with just uh, you know rotation screws, which is what the recon screws are. Um, use your radiolucent retractors if you have access to them. Make sure that you have in the room available shant pins, even if you don't open them, that you have large fracture reduction clamps, Weber's collinear clamps um, in the room, even if you don't use them. And most importantly, always ask for more paralysis than the CRNA or anesthesiologist wants <laughs> to give you. Even if they say, I just checked that there are no twitches, you know how tense those muscles are. You can tell them, we're going to be here for another hour to an hour and a half. You need to get more paralysis. Um, <laughs> they will never give enough to get them to relax to the point where, where you can do this. And so, you know, those are the things that can make your life a lot easier, that can make the case uh, be smoother for, for your patient and for yourself and, and to allow you to do a safe, efficient surgery. Perfect. Dr. Rizzi, I think, again, I think that was great, um, great, uh, tricks and tidbits and, and high um, points to touch base on. Again, I, I think this was great. Uh, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast, being a guest. Uh, at the end, we always let our um, let our, our guests, you know, share if you have any social media or anything that you want people to follow you on. Feel free to let the people know. If not, that's great. But, you know, totally up to you. Yeah, thank you for, for allowing me to do that. So I do have a an Instagram account. It's a ortho underscore trauma underscore Texas. And so, you know, what I like to do is I like to just post uh, cases and x-rays uh, that I've done. And, and the nice thing about, um, you know, the cases that I like to post is that they're principle based. Uh, you'll find a lot of surgeons that um, are just uh, masters um, at surgery. Uh, and they'll post some of these incredibly complex cases that, you know, only they could do in their hands. And I think that's a fantastic learning tool for everybody. And I certainly follow a lot of those people. I, I like to tailor my cases more towards, you know, something that everybody can do. Um, the general surgeon, the hand surgeon who's on call, the trauma surgeon who's on call, because I think that, you know, it, it's more uh, usable to the entire community if it's something that not only a fellowship trained trauma surgeon can do. So certainly, I think you guys will find that. Um, and then also you can send me messages there um, and, and we can we can talk shop about any um, cases that you may be preparing for that that we can discuss um, to kind of help spark um, some, you know, uh, communication. Um, and, and certainly I'm always available to, to anybody that's interested in, in orthopedics and orthopedic trauma or just wants to talk ortho in general. Um, even if it's something that's different, right? Like if you guys ever want to uh, talk about how do you code, how do you bill, um, you know, management of the operating room, uh, staff, your nurses, your PAs, your medical assistants. So there's a lot of things outside of the operating room that can, that matter significantly to your day-to-day -day practice. And so um, the more that we're involved with each other in the community, the better that it is for everyone. Perfect. Well, Dr. Raza, again, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Those of you listening, 
Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button and uh, stay in tune for um, the next week's podcast. But then again, go and leave a review and let us know how much you like this uh, podcast and this talk today on subtrochanteric femur fractures. Until next time. Guys, don't forget to go and check out Convey MD, today's podcast episode sponsor. Again, they have a medical education podcast where some of you may actually be listening to this episode of Nailed It Ortho Podcast and go on over there and you can check out all of our show notes from today's episode. So go check it out. It is a free download in the app store.